This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Tonight we're going to find out how rehydrating the land can affect the climate crisis. This is episode two of our series based on the novel Ministry for the Future. I've got so many good ideas out of that novel by Kim Stanley Robinson. And just this week, flooding water in Europe, crashing through houses. You would all have seen this on television and towns and farmlands also in Malaysia have devastated many people, many people's lives. And so I thought we'd come back to water. In the chapter from the novel, which Molly will read to us a bit later, we hear about a project This is a fictional idea, but, you know, it's a project to restore all the aquifers of California. And then I looked up on the internet something about rehydrating California, and there, in fact, was a seminar called that, Can We Rehydrate California? And towards the end of the show, I'll talk to its organiser, Dee Dee Pursehouse, and hear from an Australian soil scientist from the CSIRO who was there. He's called Walter Yenner. But the water story starts for me years ago. I went to a conference on water and rehydrating farmlands and there were many thoughts and many seeming to me very grandiose projects. But I met a water engineer there from Slovakia. His name was Michal Krajcik. And it always stayed with me that he had such bold ideas to rehydrate parts of Australia. And he's a hero in Europe for the way he has got communities to slow down rainwater, many communities working together, working very democratically too, to slow down the rainwater till it soaks below and holds the earth in place. He won the Goldman Prize for Environmental Leadership and he's now a leader in talking about water and climate change. Here is Mikhail Kravchik. We have in Slovakia, just now, two seasons. We are jumping directly from winter to summer. Three, four decades when I was young, we had four seasons. Why? More dry up of lands, because it's water lost from ecosystem. We know that water which are lost from small water cycle, it's the same like in bleeding from our body and we need to stop bleeding of ecosystem. And after that, we'll be starting whole system regenerate. My name is Michael Krauchik. I am from Ludia Avoda, which means in English is People and Water NGO. With my colleague, we published the New Water Paradigm in 2007, and it's 2010 was massive historical flooding in Slovakia because from roofs, 
from streets, from paving, parking place was run of water very fast and concentrate, which means bad news and danger. Our prime minister was a sociologist and she invited us to help for Slovakia. I created with my team and we prepared this program for whole Slovakia. Government say, okay, 25 million euros. Whole idea was to stop erosion process, stop runoff sedimentation to harvest water. And with every water retention measures directly on the stream support clean water. First years was implemented in 488 community and create more than 7,000 jobs, more than 100,000 water retention measures with volume of around 10 million cubic meters. And this solution was extremely cheap, which means it is good. If people listen to us, we will be success very fast. Not only we are for Australia, for India, for China, or in Spain, for Africa. And it's listen guy, we are completely dependent on the water because we are water. And after one year, we can save climate system and recovery. Some other people I met when I could travel for this show were Nikki Churlian and Craig Carter. I went to their farm. I got off the train from Tamworth to Sydney at a place called Quirindi. So if you can visualise that on the map, it's beautiful country. And they do regenerative farming. They will tell you about just how a large group of landholders got together to rehydrate the upper Mookie catchment. They've been sequestering tons of carbon along the way. I was riding here one day and I had a sense of this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm currently the chair of Upper Mukai Land Care Group. We were going into and through a really significant drought when we really got our heads together about how can we work on a catchment-wide basis to rehydrate and drought-proof 13 farms scattered across this catchment of the Upper Mukai. I think Australia now, with climate change, we have to be in drought preparation all the time. And I do think Landcare's got a really important role. I just think community is so important. It's one of the basic tenets of Landcare. It is about rehydration and regenerative farming, but it is all about community health. The Upper Mukai uh, Rehydration Project is one of the largest rehabilitation projects uh, that LLS has undertaken in this region. This uh, project is primarily funded through Catchment Action New South Wales. It's great to see so many different landholders get involved with a project like this. I manage Windy Station. It's about 21,500 hectares on the top end of the Liverpool Plains. We run a beef uh, cattle enterprise and a dryland cropping enterprise. We've got an area of the Yarramumbar Creek which is on the lower end of the, the catchment. The project for us is about excluding livestock from there, which is fencing. 
then we've got some remedial earthworks that we'll undertake there and then also trying to get some, um, some native veg back in there, so in the form of trees and, and other things that, that, that will stabilise and um, help maintain that waterway. We want to be a sustainable business and to do that we need to be financially sustainable but also environmentally sustainable. On the edge of the Liverpool Plains at Blackville, New South Wales, uh, we have 4,000 acres here. We've got quite a few projects happening. A large portion of that is to fence out the creeks, basically to control the stock, encourage as much growth as we possibly can um, in the creeks and the aim of that is to slow down the water and to basically keep as much sediment as we possibly can on our farm. One of the other elements of our work is earthworks. In a large portion of our contours, we're creating level sill spills. So we're basically creating spillways. They're on a ridge and the water will then run down the contour and it will then spill out in a fan-like direction. It will then have the ability to then soak up in our property again, rather than continuing to run down into a gully and create erosion. Having local land services help fund part of this project has enabled for these works to happen quicker than what uh, we would have been able to do by ourselves. This project has enabled a much broader scale adoption of those practices and we can start to see change on a bigger scale. This whole concept now of looking at a catchment like this and thinking of a sponge and trying to get that sponge working properly. So when we do get the 50 millimetres that we're getting tomorrow, it doesn't just come in and out of the system, it's actually getting into the ground and it's residual flow that's coming out. We're at Big Jack's Creek, which is in the foothills of Liverpool Ranges. I think some of our practices have really led to drying the property. So on the oaks, we've got three pieces of work. We're doing fencing on Oakey Creek, we're doing some work converting grade contours to swale banks. And the third thing is we're converting some long-term oats fodder cropping paddocks into permanent pasture paddocks. I really like the opportunity to look after sort of three kilometres of pretty pristine waterways. And uh, it's great to go down and see a, a proliferation of, of birds and wildlife in those creeks it's a vastly improved environment. Projects uh, such as the Upper Mukai Landcare Rehydration Project build resilience against uh, climatic variations and fluctuations. They also uh, mitigate the, the rate of land degradation. I love seeing landholders achieve uh, things on the ground and being really pleased with the results. And we can see the landscape changing and having benefits. That's what inspires me. This rehydration will store more carbon in the soil. And so that is one of the most important things because it's the basis of life. When we all come together, we've all got this common aim of thinking, okay, so let's do the best thing for our landscape. Let's heal it and let's protect it for the future. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artists' continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. 
All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love come your way What can I say You feel the guest is Craig Carter and he and his wife Nikki are regenerative farmers. They have been a big part of the Upper Muki rehydration project. When I visited your place I saw a creek with lots of obstacles in the path of the water and I didn't see a platypus but I believe that a lot more wildlife has come back. So how many other landholders have done this sort of work? We've just completed a project with our local land services uh, government agency, which involved 13 different properties and 11 different landowners. And the focus there was to do not only, or very little stream work was actually done, but it was mostly focusing on building up our living ground cover, our plants, our grasses, to slow the flow of the water across the landscape. So putting in interventions in gullies that would make, the, if you've got an incised gully like a drain, to then reconnect the old stream braids, as they're called, to get the water to flow more slowly through the landscape and create more grass. Then the final thing, and the really one of the most important tools, is to manage our grazing in such a way that we promote as much growth of perennial grasses as we can because these deep roots of the perennial grasses can take the water one, one and a half, two metres down into the soil. Mm. And we had this beautifully demonstrated when we had a field day here in 2019. A mate of mine's a geomorphologist and he likes to have soil pits so that he can show people what's under the grass. And he came in to me and he said, I found water. <laughs> and this was during the drought. Anyway, we're standing there and he's, he's in this soil pit and he reached into the side of it and grabbed a handful of soil clay and passed it up to the good looking girl that he was talking to and said, tell me about this. And she said, it's wet. <laughs> and he said, yes, we've got a drought and that's wet. And he said, everybody come around behind me and I'll show you why. And he showed them the roots of a perennial grass tussock that went 1.2 metres into the ground. And the reason it couldn't go any further was because it hit a sheet of rock and it was wet all the way down. And so this is why we've got to manage our grazing because if we manage our grazing and we get our perennial root systems down, and some of the grasses here can shoot roots down two and three metres, wow. then we've got a big store of moisture underneath us. And one of the other things that we can do with our grazing management is to build up our soil carbon. That is also critical because by building our soil carbon, we're changing the structure of the soil and we're making it more like a sponge. 
And for every increase in what they call soil organic matter, which is 58% carbon, we can build between 187,000 and 200,000 litres per hectare in the top six inches. So as that, the humus or the compost, as people often think of it, um, builds and mixes into the soil, the amount of mineral in the soil is not going to change. So it's going to be so many kilos per hectare or whatever. But the amount of organic matter will increase. And as we get an increase in that organic matter, it then starts to create a sponge-like environment. And part of how that happens goes back to the grazing management also because as a plant grows, it photosynthesizes. So it takes carbon dioxide out of the air, takes water out of the soil, and by that wonderful process called photosynthesis, it turns it into sugar and oxygen, which is why we need plants to breathe. But that sugars, the plant then sends down to its roots to do a little bit of a deal. It's a bit of a drug market going on down there. You've got the, the sugar supplier, the plant, <laughs> supplying the drug dealer, the fungus, the fungi, who go out and get um, nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and all the other goodies that a plant needs to grow. And so that's what goes on, and that's called the liquid carbon pathway, which is a concept developed by a very good friend of mine, Dr. Christine Jones. Now, those sugars, then they're sticky and you know, they're like molasses or stuff like that. As they start to break down, some of them form a product called glomalin, which is kind of like that syrupy, sticky, treacly stuff, and others are... Bits of the sugar are consumed by bacteria and, and other bugs and things like that and emitted as carbon dioxide. So we don't trap everything that the plant brings down. But that glomalin binds to the soil particles and it adds to the sponginess of the soil, which adds to how it can absorb more water. I want to know what other techniques you use. This Upper Mookie project, I realised that it was on different types of property, some sort of dry land farming, some irrigated. You know, it was a different geography, wasn't it, you covered in your area. That's the Upper Mookie catchment area. So what other techniques did you use to keep that water in the soil or slow it down? Back in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, a lot of contour banks were put in because... They were trying to convert the country to farming and they wanted one gully, not 100 gullies and all this sort of stuff. And now that there's a lot more emphasis on grazing, particularly up in the headwaters of the streams, there are nine streams in the Upper Mokai catchment and those nine streams, the headwaters of them, um, what Tim, my government colleague, quite often calls the hillbilly co component, he, he discusses the the relationship between us and the guys down on the flat is the hillbillies versus the flat earthers. <laughs> um, and the hillbillies are trying to hold as much water up as we can because we can use it, we can make it more effective, we can make it more productive. And by doing that, 
we're able to run more sheep and cattle and those guys down there are getting their water coming to them slowly rather than just in one big whooshka. And so it's, it's things like creating swales out of these drains. You block the drain off and you redirect the water out so that it fans out across the landscape rather than runs down a gully. And as it's fanning out across the landscape, of course, it's getting the opportunity. And you only do this where you've got 100% ground cover. So it's getting the opportunity to trickle between the roots of the plants and the butts of the grasses. And as it's doing that, it's just slowly soaking in. So that, you know, ideally, by the time you get down to the next swale, you should have very little water running off from the first one. When you were talking about the hillbillies and the flat earthers, what's the difference between that way of managing the water compared to, say, the Murray-Darling, which has become so contentious, you know, with farmers seemingly to retain a lot of the water and then the uh, environmental flows don't go down and even the people further down the river don't get The difference is that a lot of the water that's being stored is not being released. We're not holding, we're not storing water. We're not building storage. What we're doing is we're slowing the flow of the water through the landscape. So the water that flows out of my landscape into my creek is just doing it very gently. And we're not getting the big overland flows that do occur with floods. But we will, and they will happen. But what we're seeing, and we look at the one that, that got all the, the, um, the press a few years back, like Covey Station, and they just build massive water storages so that they can irrigate cotton. Um, the evaporative loss from that is huge because they're big open dams and they don't release the water. It's held. It's not allowed to flow gently. And that's the key difference. Um, other work that's been done is, as you mentioned, when you walk down the creek, I don't know whether you noticed that the creek's fenced out so that we can manage the stock out of the creek. We don't keep them out totally. They might be allowed in, in this part of the world, winter is the better time to let them in to graze it because they don't do as much damage. In other parts, it might be summer. And so some of our project participants were fencing their creeks off and moving the stock watering facilities away from the creek. Now doing that then encourages the growth of plants like casuarina or uh, she-oak or river oak and reeds like phragmites, rushes, uh, typha, kumbungi or, or bulrushes as they're more commonly known. And these all build up within the bed of the creek and then start to act as kind of obstacles to slow the flow of the water down. And so these guys, all, you know, everybody has this common theme of increased ground cover. So we've got the water trickling down rather, rather than rushing down. And when it gets to the creek, it's coming onto water that's moving nowhere near as rapidly as it would have previously before we started the project. What happens in a flood? You've had floods as well as fires and drought this last couple of years? We do have floods because... We're trying to build these structures. And as I mentioned to you earlier, we, we design everything with what's called safe to fail. So if it breaks down or it doesn't work, it's not going to create all sorts of havoc. And so then 
if we get a flood and these streams can move a lot of water very quickly, but we design the structures that we're putting into the, the gullies and into the landscape to be able to what they call overtop. But when it overtops, it doesn't do any damage, or if it does, it doesn't do any significant damage and it's easily repaired. If we get a flood in the creeks, because the water is, we're, we're building the, the layers of water up so that the flood itself doesn't do much damage. Very different situation to what occurred sort of on the coast or up in North Queensland. We don't get those sorts of floods. Remember the big flood uh, from Cyclone Trevor that sort of drowned thousands and hundreds of thousands of cattle in Western Queensland. We don't get those sorts of floods in this catchment. Around the world, just at the moment while we're speaking, people are being flooded in the eastern part of Malaysia, rural people, and as well as that northern uh, Europe, you know, shocking scenes on television of floods there. And I'm wondering, we've got heat waves and fires in California following a drought as well. So climate change seems to be, you know, turbocharging a lot of very shocking weather that's very damaging and eroding and destructive. So how are rehydration projects like yours, do you know, how, how are they helping in your region and how are they helping around the world to sort of counter man this um, climate change extreme? Part of it is it, it's a more holistic process than just looking at just the rehydration project. The rehydration project is, is one tool in the toolbox. Um, and the other ones are the other principles that I mentioned, such as grazing management and um, that ground cover issue. Because the more ground cover we've got, the more the grass is growing, the more carbon dioxide it's pulling out of the atmosphere. And we've pulled in the past up to 14 tonnes of carbon out of the atmosphere, which has got a 45 tonne CO2 equivalent. Now, I haven't worked out how many cars that takes off the road per hectare, but it does work quite nicely. One of the other things is a lot of the parts of Europe that are flooding are incredibly overbuilt. Now, we can't stop that, but we've got to, it's a bit like, you remember that flood that went through Toowoomba a few years back and there were cars rushing down the street. It's the same scenario where we've, we've built over watercourses, we've built over um, stream flows with hard surfaces that have no ability or capacity to absorb water. And by doing that, we're just creating these drains. And water is a very, very, very powerful bulldozer. And if, if it can't just flow where it wants to go, it'll push its way through. And we're seeing that in some of those really tragic photos of Luxembourg and Germany. And um, I haven't seen the ones of Malaysia, but I suspect that they're running through some of the plantations where it's more likely to have very little ground cover, lots of trees, but very little ground cover. And so the water has, you know, if there's no ground cover, the ground becomes hard. As it becomes hard, it then just, or it saturates, as we're nearly saturated here, and then it runs off. But it's got nothing to slow it up. And it's a bit like if you had a sponge sitting on a sheet of glass and you ran a glass of water down next to the sponge and one down through the sponge, 
the one that ran through the sponge would slow right down until the sponge became saturated and then it would flow. Whereas the other one just goes straight down the sheet of glass. Mm. And that's very much the difference. You've got a, a hard drainage versus a soft sponge. Do you think you could do that up in country, say Queensland cattle country, where they, it sounds to me it's like overseas owners or very large, large holdings. Would you get that same sort of community there where you could do regenerative farming up there? There are some programs up there called the Dry North Tropics, which is where we've got a couple of colleagues of mine are, are participating in the education process or, or the engagement to get them to come on board because one of the, the really key concerns that the Queensland government and the federal parts of the federal government have got is the amount of topsoil that's going out into the reef. And so the objective is to get the grazing management changed so that they're growing more grass, protecting their landscape, so that they're not losing topsoil. If they don't lose topsoil, then the reef doesn't get filled up with mud and sort of mm. mud and crud, for want of a better term. And that's, to me, a really admirable process. So, yes, it can be done. It can be done on all sorts of different scales. You know, we've got some pretty significant chunks of land here that are participating. One property is 20,000 hectares, another's four, another's one. You know, that's a fairly big chunk of country. Good on you. Thank you very much, Craig. You're listening to the Climate Action Show at Radio 3CR, and we're exploring what it means for the climate when farmers rehydrate the land. You'll hear a lot about perennial grasses with roots going down metres and soil carbon sponges. But let's first have a break with a song from Peter van der Levu called Fight for the Trees. Up high upon Mount Reed, a pine tree stands. Northwest Tasmania, on Tomaguinea land. It's the oldest tree in our country, 2,000 rings it shows. It sprouted at the time of Christ, all those years ago. Nearby mines have come and gone, miracle it survived Short-term greed all around, scars the mountainsides The mountainsides Yes, scars the mountainsides The mountainsides up high near Talangi town, the Kalapa giant stands. Four hundred years it's been growing on Woiwurrung land. Central highlands, mountain ash, precious as it comes, cleansing air and water, alchemists of the sun. But as I sing these giant trees, Hercules of nature, 
of being pulled into photocopy paper. Photocopy paper into photocopy paper. Yeah, reflex copy paper. How is it that we let this happen? It's a travesty. Out of sight, out of mind, we cannot let that be. The simple truth is that we can't live without the trees. 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 Sing with me, oh, we need the trees, oh, we need the trees, oh, gotta fight for the trees. Capitol Hill, a big house stands with red and green chambers on Gunner Wall land. Our so-called leaders riding high in their big charade. They let power plays and politics always win the day. They can dodge and weave and double speak. As much as they please But when will they face the fact We can't live without the trees 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 Sing with me Fight for the trees. Walk among the trees. Miracles of green. Walk among the trees. Our futures in their leaves. Walk among the trees. Feel their presence. Walk among the trees One last time Oh, we need the trees Oh, we need the trees Oh, gotta fight for the trees Thanks to Peter van der Levu for that song. And now we're going to California. In the novel Ministry for the Future, the main character sees a model of rehydration which replenishes the underground water. This is not on the 
model of big dams like the Hoover Dam, which you might recently have seen, is at a very low level. It's about slowing floodwaters and rain through all sorts of land management that rehydrates the land in the process. California, one of the chief breadbaskets of the world, but dry. Water had always been the weak link and now climate change was making it worse. The entire state was now plumbed for water. They moved it around as needed, but when droughts came, there was not much to move. And droughts were coming more and more frequently. Also occasional deluges. Either too little or too much was the new pattern, alternating without warning, with droughts predominating. The upshot would be more forest fires, then more flash floods, and always the threat of the entire state going as dry as the Mojave Desert. Hydrologists pointed at the model below as they explained to Mary the water situation. Typically, the Sierra snowpack held about 15 million acre feet of water every spring, releasing it to reservoirs in a slow melt through the long dry summers. The dammed reservoirs in the foothills could hold about 50 million acre feet when full. Then the groundwater basin underneath the Central Valley could hold around 1,000 million acre feet, and that immense capacity might prove their salvation. In droughts, they could pump up groundwater and put it to use. Then during flood years, they needed to replenish that underground reservoir by capturing water on land and not allowing it all to spew out the Golden Gate. To help accomplish all of this, they passed a law, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which they called SIGMA. In effect, it created a new commons, which was water relief, owned by all and managed together. Records were kept, prices were set, allotments were dispensed, parts of the state had been taken out of agricultural production. In drought years, they pumped up groundwater, keeping close track, conserving all they could. In flood years, they caught water in the valley and helped it sink into the basin. How they did this last part was a particular point of pride for them, as they had discovered that the Central Valley's floor was variably permeable. They had located several incised canyons created when powerful flows of melted ice had poured off the Sierra ice cap at the end of the last two or three ice ages. These canyons had subsequently filled with boulders and had been slowly covered with dirt, so that they now looked just like the rest of the valley floor. But in fact, if water was trapped over them, they would serve as gigantic French drains, allowing water to sink into and through them, thus recharging the groundwater basin much faster than other areas would allow. So California's state government had bought or otherwise claimed the land over these French drain areas and built dams, dikes, levees, baffles, and channels to and fro. Until now, the entire valley was plumbed to direct heavy rainfall floods onto these old incised canyons, holding water there long enough for a lot of it to percolate down rather than run out to sea. Of course, there were limits to how much they could retain, but now pretty good flood control was combined with a robust recharge capacity, so they could stock up in wet years and then pump again in the drought years that were sure to follow. Good in itself. Great, in fact. Got to fight for the trees. Walk among the trees. Miracles of green Walk among the trees Our future's in their leaves Walk among the trees Feel their presence, feel their peace Walk among the trees One last time Fight 
for the trees. And now I'm delighted to introduce Didi Pursehouse. She's in Vermont, and I saw her on a video about turning infertile land into a soil carbon sponge. She's an educator, and she's very committed to building a healthy community. Welcome, Didi, to the Climate Action Radio Show. Would you tell us what it's like where you are today? Uh, well, today it's, it's hazy. I'm in Vermont uh, in the USA, and the skies are hazy, even though it's technically a sunny day. And that's because we're getting smoke from the wildfires all the way across the continent, from oh. the West Coast to the East Coast. Uh, but we've had a we've had uh, several weeks of enormous rain, so much so that I've got water in the basement of the house for the first time in years. Oh uh, wow! Well, this is what we're talking about today, which is water and rehydration of the land. And I was really enthralled by your presentation to a group of people concerned about the earth. And it was called, Can We Rehydrate California? And I just Googled that. And I, I was really enchanted by what you did. You had a very simple experiment. It was very engaging. And I know you're a good teacher from that because it involved a sponge. And I'd like you to tell us, what does that have to do with climate action, that sponge? Everything is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my... For the last number of years, uh, the the centerpiece of all of my teaching has been what I call the soil sponge or uh, the soil carbon sponge, or it's actually in the in previous times or in farm, some farming communities, uh, it was called tilth, which is that it is the structural and functional integrity of the soil is what we're talking about. And I generally demonstrate that with um, a plate of flour, like flat wheat flour that you might make bread out of, and a plate with a few slices of bread piled on top of each other, and um, poke a few holes in a cup and rain on the flour versus raining on the bread to show the difference between degraded soil, which is like flour and has gone back to just primarily the sand, silt, and clay uh, primary components to, um, to a, a soil that is healthy and living and that is functioning like a soil sponge mm -hmm. uh, and, and where you have biology that's working to take those particles of sand, silt, and clay and put them into something that has the structure and function of a sponge, which is very much like those slices of bread. Yeah. So, um, and if you think about it, uh, uh, if you think about a kitchen sponge, which is another analogy, uh, if you put a kitchen sponge into the sink, it doesn't fall apart. It has that structural integrity. You put it in the water. Uh, and if you pour water on it, it absorbs it. So those are the two essential qualities is that it can accept water, this healthy soil, and it doesn't fall apart when it's wet or when the wind blows or et cetera. So... It's especially um, poignant at the moment as between last week and this week, terrible floods have appeared in Northern Europe, Germany. We've all seen the photos and in Malaysia and someone told me tonight in Uganda. So maybe around the world, there's also a huge amount of precipitation. 
And yet last week we were talking to people in Oregon and in Vancouver and they were reeling from the lethal heat wave, marine heat wave, including, you know, mussels and starfish boiled to death really and tossed up on the beaches and then wildfires that are still raging and that's why you're getting the smoke. And Australians know this sequence of events very well. They usually follow a drought, you know, a long drought. I'd like you to tell us how this sort of idea of rehydrating as much land as we can, rehydrating the land, has a cooling effect. Okay, yeah, so it's, there, there are a number of factors at work there. When we talk about rehydrating the land, what we're really talking about is helping that soil go from that degraded flower-like state into a living sponge-like bread, you know, like bread with little porous holes in it state. Or some people call it chocolate cake. <laughs> so, yeah. And when you can have soil in that in that living spongy state, when you do get rain, uh, the soil the soil will absorb it and hold it there for the plant roots for later use. It will also filter it and and seep out into springs and ponds and rivers and other places as opposed to running off and going straight into the river and out to the ocean. You know, many people talk about rehydration by building berms or actually changing the topography of the land or digging ponds, which is fine. I'm not opposed to doing that in very dry conditions, a little bit of that, but that's only capturing a certain amount of water in that space. What we need is the whole surface of the earth to be covered with this spongy, deep, spongy soils so that, so that it's, it's always capturing rain. And that prevents both flooding and drought. And what, what we see in the world is that places that have drought, when it rains, they typically flood. And yeah. that's because it's the same phenomenon that they're, they're, it isn't capturing water when, when it does rain. So in terms of cooling, how this functions is that when you have uh, water at uh, the plant root zone, then the plants can both photosynthesize, which means that they grow, they uh, feed all of the life above ground and below ground through their roots. But while they're photosynthesizing, they're also doing something called transpiring water, which is the equivalent of a plant sweating. So it's water evaporating from the leaves and as water evaporates, and we know this with our own bodies, right? If you have, if you're sweating or if your shirt is wet, it's cooler. So, uh, so it cools the plant leaves as it evaporates, which is part of why the plants do that. But what's amazing and what we don't realize is that it's also cooling the air around the plants. Uh, do you mean so that land with a bit of ground cover on it all the time is cooler? Than land that's just left bare. Yes, and it's for for a number of reasons. So this transpiration is one, and you you'll notice that, for example, if you step from um, from an area that's got very low plants into a forest, but you're standing even in a sunny spot in the forest where there's no shade, the air is still cooler there, and that's yeah. because the air around the trees is cooler, not just under the trees. So National Geographic just did a whole issue about shade as an essential aspect of climate resilience, but they didn't 
whoever wrote it didn't quite get that it's not just the shade of the trees that cools a city. It's the air, it's the whole transpiration that's happening from, they're, they're, they are literally functioning as air conditioners. It's the yeah. same way that an air conditioner cools. So that's one, so that's cooling the air, but also when you have that sponge, the soil itself is cooler because of that, that water is in there. Yeah. Um, it's holding water. And if you think about ste- stepping from dry sand onto wet sand, it's cooler, right? Yeah. If you think about stepping from pavement onto just soil, it's a little cooler. But if yeah. you think about stepping from pavement to, to bare soil to a grassy meadow, your feet are cooler each time you move to something that can hold more water. It's so elementary in a way, you know, it seems like something that even a child can understand. And yet we don't know this, do we? We constantly, in Australia, you can go by train across huge agricultural lands and it's bare. You know, it's left to the, it's not only the erosion, we have dust storms. And I mean, there's a big movement of regenerative farmers here, but but still there's a lot of farmers who don't get it, who still think, no, industrial farmers will just do it like that. And So there are, there are like five or six different ways in which having plant cover is cooling. But when you have that kind of massive heating of a, a bare soil, it creates this big high pressure heat dome over that whole part of the land or part of the continent. Yeah. And, and that heat is pushing away the clouds, the rain clouds that are trying to come. One of the things um, is about aquifers. You know, we worry about these underground water catches, especially in California, they've sucked some of them dry, apparently. And in Australia, these are often protected by indigenous and local people. You know, they really, really know about it, but people in the city don't really understand it because you can't see it, it's underground. But all of these here are threatened by coal mines and gas drilling. And if I wondered if the number of landholders rehydrated their property in the way that you've been talking about, creating that carbon sponge, would that replenish the underground aquifers as well? That's a great question, Vivian. And you know, I've, my, my more recent understanding is that probably not, or at least not very quickly, um, that those aquifers are really ancient water, kind of in the same way that yeah. it's the aquifers are like are to water what fossil fuels are to carbon. Mm. So over time, yes, water will seep down from the groundwater. It does hold more water underground, but the aquifers are much deeper than that. Yeah. So over time, yes, it would it could help replenish them, but probably not in a, a meaningful time period in terms of our life. So, but however, however, the groundwater that is closer to the surface, absolutely replenishing the soil sponge, having more vegetation, managing land more thoughtfully will replenish the groundwater. And that's what, that's all that we really need. Mm. Uh, we don't, we don't need to be using the aquifers if we are thoughtfully managing groundwater, because then we have wells, we have, we have ponds, we have rivers that come back to life. We've seen in Zimbabwe and other places. Yeah. Uh, so, so there should be plenty of water closer to the surface for use, and in, including bringing back water that people even haven't seen in their lifetimes at, closer to the surface. I wonder, are you seeing a change now in awareness around you or some sort of desire, real desire to heal the land? 
I think in the New Deal era, you had that where Roosevelt planted, you know, sent out thousands of people to plant millions of trees in the Dust Bowl. Is there some desire like that to heal the land and start again? Well, absolutely. There's a huge interest around the world in what people are calling regenerative agriculture. What I'm seeing is that there are people who, a lot of farmers and ranchers who who used to, and also even just people with, you know, with houses and yards, who used to think about the land in terms of like, what can I kill? You know, like, <laughs> uh, which pesticide should I use? Which herbicide should I use? Which insecticide should I use? Mm-hmm in order to make the land better or to kill off some so-called invasive species, etc. And who, once they start to get a sense that, but that our true relationship to the land is, is participating in the work of all species, that we have a role to play, but it's just a, one small part of the whole. And so once they get that sense and start to look for what, is, what work are these wasps doing? What work uh, is this even poison ivy doing? What work is happening here? Why would a weed come in that's got a deep tap root in a, in a place where the soils are compacted, mm. right? So starting to think about the, the what's sometimes called biological work, or I'm starting to call it like essential workers, <laughs> uh, being a, like a biological term, then people get interested in what their role is in a different way. And, and they start to see things differently, and they start to ask different questions. So then it's like, what, how can I create conditions for, um, for everyone to be able to do their work in this landscape and still grow some food for me. One of the key things that I hear from indigenous people is is that we've lost our power of observation. We don't spend enough time just being quiet and being with the other worker, the other workers mm-hmm. on the land. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, meaning meaning the biological workforce, the, yeah. the, the birds, the insects, the plants. Fantastic. Thank you. You've covered so much ground in that. It's really lovely to meet you, and thank you for telling us all about what you're doing. Thank Great. You. To <laughs> Thank you. That was Dee Dee Pursehouse in uh, Vermont talking to us about the soil carbon sponge. And may I just um, also say, if people want to learn more, there are some several websites that you can go to. One is uh, uh, landandleadership.org. Um, that's where you can find courses and community and videos and materials that I've been putting together. And then also, uh, I think it's regenerate-earth.org uh, is uh, Walter Yena and I and others. Um, th- those are more, more resources there. And then there's rehydratecalifornia.org. So okay. all three of those are places you can find more information. Okay. In fact, I may not be able to include all of Didi's talk on the radio broadcast, so you have extra bonus material in the podcast. So another reason to go to the 3CR website and find the podcast. You've been listening to the Climate Action Radio Show, and tonight we've been looking at rehydrating the landscape. As Buckminster Fuller said many years ago, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Well, 
a lot of our climate action is standing up against the present reality, sort of fighting it, like fighting the new coal and gas projects still being approved and subsidised here. But what tonight's guests show is that there's a huge network of groups modelling a way to rehydrate farmlands. The carbon they sequester and the evaporation they prevent is little appreciated, but it's a boon to the climate. And I'd like to thank Mikhail Kravchik, Nikki Cherlian, Craig Carter, Molly for the reading from Ministry for the Future, Walter Yena and Didi Pursehouse. For getting the show to air, a big cheerio to Michaela at 3CR in Melbourne and Raoul at Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377 or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. this week. We've been talking about water and a vital water source up in Queensland is the Doomabula Springs. The Wangan and Jagalingu people have been protecting this sacred place and now the Adani coal mine is threatening its existence by siphoning out and polluting great volumes of water. You can join them by emailing the Queensland Environment Minister. Her name is Minister Megan Scanlon. If you have a pen handy, here is her address. Environment at ministerial.qld.gov.au Tell her you support the call to stop work on the mine to get independent verification of government investigations into this mine and to assert the right of the Wangan and Jagalingu custodians to hold Adani to account. Please put a CC on your email <coughs> to Wangan and Jagalingu SOG at gmail.com. I'll spell that W A N G A N. A-N-D-J-A-G-A-L-I-N-G-O-U-S-O-G at gmail.com. The details will be on the Climate Action Show page at Radio 3CR. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire. And this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare. But what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air 
subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's cold. It's cold. It's cold. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.